I'm assuming many of you have heard a familiar campaign around this season. It's called the Keep Christ in Christmas campaign. If you're not familiar with this campaign, it is a movement of Christians who have grown weary of political correctness, of the commercialization of the Christmas season, and so in response, they have put two bumper stickers, t-shirts, websites, signs, whatever you can think of, keep Christ and Christmas or some other slogans. For example, these can be seen on church signs, real church signs. I am not making these up. Are you part of the in crowd or the stable few? Or did you know who wrapped the first Christmas present? Well, it was Mary and Joseph wrapping baby Jesus. Do you already have an iPod, iPhone, or iPad? Why not try iPray? God is listening. This one is rather unfortunate. Think you might be going to hell? Well, just skip church this Christmas and you'll make sure you do. Or my favorite, do you know what we are missing this Christmas? Spelled out is C-H space space C-H. I'll give you a second on that one. You are. Thank you, Eddie. Yes. You're missing this Christmas. Now, I would imagine some of you love this kind of stuff. Others of you probably think this is rather cheesy. Might want to cringe when you see a sign like that. Feel embarrassed like the time your mom and dad kiss you when you're a teenager. And you're like, Mom, no, please, go away. Come on. No matter what you think about signs and Christmas campaigns, I do want us to seriously think about this slogan. Keep Christ in Christmas. How well do you think you're doing at keeping Christ in your Christmas? I mean this for you as an individual, not just us as a nation or society or community. Do you feel as if this Christmas you have spent time worshiping Jesus? Has he been the center of your attention, your focus, your going about to and fro from parties? I wonder how many of us have spent more of our time, energy, money, and focus on man-made traditions that have little or nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever than our time, energy, and money on the God-man, Jesus Christ. What if today and tomorrow we decided on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day that this particular group of Christians in the room would stop pointing our fingers out at everyone else outside of the church with our signs, our t-shirts, our bumper stickers, and instead pointed our fingers, no, no, not at ourselves, but to him. I'm fully convinced that there is a spiritual battle going on in the world that you cannot see. It is for your mind, your attention. And even this very morning, I believe that the evil one would be happy for many of us in this room, if not all of us, to instead of thinking about Jesus, think about just anything else, especially yourself. So as we turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, this can be found on page 807 in the black Bibles in front of you. As we turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 12, I want to show you that it is very easy for Christians to keep Christ not just out of Christmas, but to keep Christ out of the very story of Christmas in the Bible. Matthew chapter 2, follow along as I read. 
verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them, he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Do you know what Christians want to talk about after reading this passage? I've spent my entire week reading books, listening to sermons, and hearing Christians talk about this passage of Scripture. And can you guess what Christians want to talk about when they read this passage? It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. How sad it is to think about how many Christians are trying to cry out to the world, keep Christ in Christmas. But we can't even keep Christ in the very story of Christmas itself. At one point, I had to just stop studying and reading and listening and just say, guys, what is going on? Why all of the fascination about the star? What is this star? Was it Halley's Comet at 11 BC? Or was it the comet in 5 BC recorded by Koreans and Chinese historians? It could have been maybe a supernova. Those happen every four or 500 years. The last one was around 1600. So if you keep going back, maybe it was a supernova. Other people think it was a convergence of Jupiter, Saturn, and the constellation Pisces. Jupiter is, of course, standing for divinity. Saturn represents the Jews. The constellation Pisces is a Palestinian constellation. And that happened on May 27th, 7 BC. Oh, that could match. Especially for those of you that are thinking, well, I thought Jesus was born at 0 AD. Well, that didn't exist. It's 1 AD, if you're thinking. And that timetable is way off. King Herod was the time of Jesus' birth, and he was alive. King Herod died around 4 BC, so Jesus had to have been born maybe 4, 6 BC. And on and on we could go, oh my gosh, are you getting my drift here? Honestly, this sounds like a possible solution. Maybe stars did come together. Maybe planets, Jupiter and Saturn does make sense. But how in the world does that show you where to walk to over a house in verse 9? Did you, did you all see that in verse 9? The star led them and rested over the place where the child was. And then all of these people are like, well, we've got to start all over with our plans. What could it be then? Well, maybe it was an angel. You see the Greek word 
star is sometimes used in Revelation and Daniel and Job to refer to angels. So it could have just been an angel the whole time. And there's lots of angels all over Christmas time. And then furthermore, it could have been maybe just a glowing presence of the Shekinah glory of God because Shekinah means God dwells with us. And maybe God's just leading like the people of Israel. And on and on and on it goes. People want to talk about anything on this passage other than Jesus. And then after you're done talking about the star, what are you talking about the next? Who are these Magi characters? Well, they could be named Balthazar, Melikar, and Gaspar. But do we really know if there were three? There were three gifts. It doesn't say how many there were. Well, maybe there was 3,000 of them. It could have been a whole tribe or people group. Were they astrologers, magicians, sorcerers? Were they from Persia, Babylonia? Oh, my, it goes on and on and on. Are, are you feeling it, friends? This is what Christians want to talk about when they read this passage. So I just quickly overviewed all of them for you, so that way we can get that out of our system. My hope is that as you all leave and you greet me, Merry Christmas, none of you are like, well, you forgot an idea. Oh, well, here's my theory of how it happened. This is not the point. That is not why this text is here with us. It is so easy for anyone, especially Christians, to take Christ out of Christmas. Maybe we're not so much different than those materialistic, politically correct, worldly people around us. So with the time remaining in this service, I'd like us to gaze at Jesus. In this crazy, busy hustle and bustle of a life and a holiday, my gift to you is an invitation to come and bow and come. Let us adore him. My hope and prayer is that you will see him like you've never seen him before. That you will gaze and savor our Savior and be further in awe. No matter what your questions are about the Magi or the star, we know this story was meant to point us to Christ. So remember when reading the Bible, the plain thing is normally the main thing. The plain thing. The simple truths are often the things we should be taking away from Scripture. The Bible is often a strange and confusing, and I would admit, difficult book to read. But the main point of this story is so plain, it is so simple, it is so easy, my friends. I'm just so sad that too many people assume it and spend all their time on anything but it. So, what is the main point of this text? What do you think it is? Why did Matthew include this story? You need to realize, that, as we talked about last week, these are not biographies that are trying to be thorough. These are theological treatments telling the end of Israel's story, and they're selective because of the story they're trying to tell. Not of the whole life and birth and teenage years and ups and downs of Jesus. This story is here for a reason. Do you know why? It is to declare that Jesus Christ is king. Oh, yeah, that does sound quite simple and plain and unassuming. I've heard that before. Phil, didn't you preach that like two, three weeks ago in the genealogy? Jesus Christ is king. He hasn't got off that point, my friends. He's still telling you Christ is the king. So here's our outline for the rest of this message. I'm going to give you three steps this morning that you can follow the example of these wise men, however many there were, three or 3,000, 
and keep Christ as our main focus the way they did on their journey. It seems to me as I look at these wise men, they, number one, knew that Jesus was the true king of the Jews. Number two, they saw Jesus from the scriptures. And number three, they worshiped him as the king, not just of the Jews, but of all the nations. So I think we could learn from them, and let's ask first, number one, do you know Jesus to be the real king of the Jews? Look with me again at chapter two, verses one through three. This is the main idea, not only of this text, but especially these first few passages. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. The word troubled here does not quite capture it. It is, he is agitated. He is stirred up. Other texts will translate this word. He is angry. There is a contrast between the current king of the Jews. His name is Herod, Herod the Great. It's a great title, especially when you title that yourself, Philip the Great. This man had an ego problem. This man had a paranoia problem. He did not want anything threatening his throne. And here you have some amount of people. I'm assuming more than three, because how do you stir up a whole city of Jerusalem if there was only like three dudes coming around, unless possibly they were just of such royalty, of such prominence. Either way, the point is that as these people come in and start asking, we've seen a star. We know the king of the Jews is born. This makes Herod furious. He thinks he's the true king of the Jews. But he didn't get that from his family origin. He does not come from the line and tribe of David like Jesus, as we saw in his genealogy. In fact, he comes from an Edomite tribe, one of the enemies of the Israelites. He was named king by the Roman Caesar Augustus. He's an illegitimate king. That's the whole point, friends. You're supposed to see Jesus has been declared in chapter 1, the son of David, the true Christ, the anointed one. And then behind in the shadows is the dark rule of Herod. And could these two kings be any more different? Matthew is doing something stunning in the way that he compares and contrasts these men and the way he even organizes his gospel. Were any of you wondering why in the world Eddie read for us from Matthew 27 on Christmas Eve? It's Christmas Eve. That was heavy. That was the birth and crucifixion of Jesus. I wanted light. I I want joy and peace. That that was intense. Why did Eddie read for us Matthew 27? Well, because Matthew does not intend for you to read chapter 2 in isolation from the rest of his book. By the time you get to chapter 27, you're supposed to start seeing connections between the message he's been giving you all along. The first time the king of the Jews phrase is used is right here in Matthew chapter 2, from Gentile, probably Babylonian or Persian, or who knows who, Magi. The first time he is declared king of the Jews is from Gentile people. The last time he's called king of the Jews, who's shouting and mocking, crucify him, crucify him. Hail, king of the Jews. 
Herod sits on his throne with a gold crown on his head, and Jesus hangs on the cross naked with a mocking robe of purple and a crown of thorns pierced into his skull. Could Matthew not paint for you a more different picture of what the kingdoms of this world are and the kingdoms of Christ? This is what Matthew chapter 2 is about. Fix your gaze on the Christ. Herod's hands were filled with blood, blood that was shed of his own wife, his two sons, and anyone who would threaten him Come back next week and see the bloodthirsty Herod kill babies and babies because he's afraid that Jesus might in fact be the true king. Jesus, his hands too were filled with blood, but it was his own blood as nails were pierced through his wrists and he bled for our sins. See, my friend, as we open up Matthew's gospel Matthew is right away trying to show you the false kingdoms of this world and the true king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ruler who will shepherd his people. A ruler who will shepherd. Should that bring back to your memory a ruler who was also a shepherd? Yeah, because Jesus is the true King David, the son of David. Who's the false David, the false ruler? Well, that's Herod, who murders people, not shepherds them. Jesus is the shepherd who leaves his throne and lays down his life for his sheep. Herod is the paranoid megalomaniac who only cares about himself and would rather kill anyone, even his own wife. According to tradition, it was his favorite wife and his two sons. There's no stopping Herod's bloodthirsty vengeance. Jesus is the Moses-like deliverer who will rescue his people from slavery. Next week in our passage in Matthew 2, Matthew's going to make this point explicit out of Egypt. I have called my son. He wants you to start thinking about how Jesus is the greater Moses right from chapter 2 in his gospel. And Herod, he is the most awful king pharaoh of Egypt, slaughtering children and trying to wipe out the Israelites. My friend, do you know this true king? This is the first thing we need to do if we're going to learn from these wise men. They knew. They knew who the true king was. They came into Jerusalem and they said, where's the king of the Jews? Why didn't they just go to the throne and say, oh, there's Herod. He's the king of the Jews. No, because they knew. He was an illegitimate king. And there was another one who was prophesied who would come and he was the true king. How far are you willing to go to see this king? What journey would you take in order for you to learn about the true king of the Jews? These wise men believed that this Christ was the one to whom they should give all honor and worship. Did you see that in verse 3? Their intent was to go worship him. They saw this star, whatever it was, and they got as far as Jerusalem. What we can learn from this passage is that whatever this star was and whatever natural revelation they were given, it could only get someone so far. So, my friend, if you would like to know the true king of the Jews, then you need to secondly see him in the scriptures. Because it wasn't until the scriptures were unfolded that they were finally able to see him. That brings me to my second question. Can you see Jesus in the scriptures? Let's look at verses 4 through 6 again. And notice this quite clearly. 
with all of Jerusalem stirred up, with them probably scared about Herod and his anger because he was troubled. Well, then that means trouble for all of Jerusalem. Verse 4. Herod then assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The first people to bow down and worship and pay honor to Jesus, the true king, are Gentiles from the east. The Jewish scribes and priests who knew the scriptures frontwards and backwards were not looking for Jesus. They seemed to be portrayed as indifferent at best. How did chapter 1 end? Chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jewish scribes and priests know their Bibles better than you and I know our Bibles. These men memorized the whole Torah. Like all of it. Memorized. We have maybe a few coffee cup verses that we've got memorized. Like, could you imagine memorizing an entire book of the Bible and then a second and then a third and then how about five or plus books memorized? These men knew the scriptures. Their problem wasn't that they knew the scriptures too little. It was that they saw Jesus as too little in the scriptures. Later on in Jesus' ministry, John's going to tell these same sort of scribes and priests, your problem is not your knowledge of the scriptures. Your problem is that you don't see me in them. You search them in vain. Friend, if we're going to be like these wise men, we need to hear the scriptures as they're portrayed to us, and then we need to go see Jesus. This is exactly what they do. They hear that the scriptures prophesied that Jesus would be in Bethlehem. And what do they do? They say, let's go to Bethlehem, guys. Let's go see Jesus. But isn't it funny? They're the only ones who go. Now, Herod has ulterior motives. He doesn't go. But how come these Jewish priests, these Jewish scribes, they don't say, oh my goodness, he's here. There's a star. There's Gentiles coming. There's a prophecy even in the book of Isaiah that said there would be people who are Gentile leaders and rulers. In fact, it uses the the word king. They'll be kings, which is why a lot of times people say we three kings of Orient are. That's where that song comes from because there's a prophecy that said there'd be kings coming and they would bring gold and frankincense to the king of Israel. And here you have these wise men, possibly kings, coming into Jerusalem with gold and frankincense. How is it not clicking in their heads? How are they not falling down and bowing down? Jesus is the one who came to save them, their people from their sins, but their people do not want this Jesus. The reason he ends the way he does in chapter 1 by saying Jesus will be the one who will save his people from their sins is because these people do not want to be saved from their sins. So in chapter 2, the very next story that he's going to share is not Jewish people bowing down before Jesus, but Gentile people 
bowing down before Jesus. Gentile people hearing the scriptures read and saying, let's go see Jesus. There are so many prophecies. Numbers chapter 24 is another one. A star will rise out of Israel and a scepter out of Judah. Do you remember that one? Well, if you had the Old Testament memorized, you would have. Most of you probably should remember that one. That was the one out of a donkey's mouth. Do you remember Balaam and that story? Go read Numbers chapter 24 and you will hear that Balaam started prophesying over and speaking these words. A star will rise out of Israel. Genesis chapter 40 talks about another star that will come. I think one of the big problems with this text is that we're so focused on the star in the sky and not the star that is Jesus Christ, the one who comes to fulfill these words. The Jewish scribes and priests are not bowing down, and I wonder for how many of us this is true of us. How many Christians know the Bible frontwards and backwards, can quote verses? How many of them have all kinds of Bible facts in their head? but do not see Jesus, do not worship Jesus in their scriptures. As a church, one of my main hopes and prayers is that we as a community of people will train and equip and sharpen one another with not just our knowledge of the Bible, but our appreciation of the Christ that is revealed in the Bible. I don't want you to just get more download facts and information. I want you to sit before the Bible morning after morning and day after day in Bible studies and in community groups and activities and events. I don't want you to come and and learn from the texts in, in Matthew's gospel as we go through it and say, oh, let me gather some more Bible knowledge. No, what we want is to all have the approach of falling at our faces before this great king and letting our whole lives be shaped around it. We have so much knowledge, my friend. We are not in need of more history, more facts, more figures. Those things are great tools for us to better understand the Bible. But then in of, of themselves, do you realize the, the day and age that we live in, in all of your phones, your pockets right now, on your phones, you've probably got more resources than all of the people that have lived before us combined. You, you don't need more head knowledge. That puffs a man up. What we need is the humility to bow before our Savior and Christ. My friend, is this your vision for this church? Do you come week after week on Sunday mornings just to learn more about the Bible or to see the Jesus in the Bible? My hope and prayer for us today and tomorrow, whatever your traditions are, is that some of you, you'll pause in your Christmas traditions, maybe before you open presents or something, and read the Bible together. See Jesus in it. Point out the glories of Jesus and his coming down to the earth. Better yet, if some of you have families with young children, I'd encourage you to have your children read the Bible. Start training them young and early. We've covenanted together that we would raise our children in the fear and admission of the Lord together to teach them and equip them. Don't just teach to them and speak to them. Have them learn to read the Bible in your family settings on a regular basis. Start that maybe this Christmas. We need to learn how to see the presence of God in our everyday lives by seeing Jesus all over the Bible. This is where the direction is going for these wise men. And if you're still a a wise man or woman, you'll see Jesus as well. That's question number two. Question number three. 
do you worship the king, not just of the Jews, but the one of all nations? We see this in verses 7 through 12, when these wise men finally get to the baby Jesus, the child. We don't actually know how old he was. The word child there could refer to anybody that's two or younger, like a toddler, which is why you'll see in the next story, Herod kills everybody two or younger. Look at verses 7 and following. Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now, he, of course, does not mean to worship them. He wants to kill him. Just keep reading the story later. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to the rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is like quadruple joy, my friends. This is, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's four different words describing their joy. They're pretty happy folks. Verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What we see in this passage is exceeding joy, humbled worship, honor and glory given to the one true king. We see men, probably women with them, who knows, like I said, could have been hundreds, thousands coming, and they're bringing gifts to Jesus. I think it's important for us to realize that the worship of Jesus has no limits. Christianity does not work in such a way where it's like, well, I'll do this for you, God, and then you give me this back. This is how a lot of people think about Christianity. So I obey these ten rules, and then when I do those, I get these blessings. It's kind of like a lever. I control and manipulate you, God, and when these things are done, I expect cha-ching, or like a genie or something. However, it is not the God of the Bible when we think of him in these ways. The God of the Bible is complete, un, unlimitless unlimit, adoration and worship. You, you just fall down and you say, everything, it's yours. I, I give my life to you because you already gave everything to me. He could never be praised too much. You could never get too excited about the Christ in the Bible. Have exceedingly great joy. Rejoice with great joy this morning that Jesus Christ has in fact come, lived, died, been buried, rose again, ascended to the heaven, and promises to return. This, my friends, should lead us to have joy. Joy to the world, the Lord. He has come and he is alive. These wise men bring gifts. They travel great distance. Regardless of where they came from, they probably traveled hundreds of miles. If you traveled on foot, maybe 15, 20 miles a day, it would take them 40, 50, maybe 60 days, especially if they were coming from Persia or Babylon. Do you see the commitment these men have? 
Does that at all reflect your commitment to Jesus? Or does everything just need to be convenient and comfortable just to fit your schedule? How about blocking out 40 days to go on a journey to Jerusalem? Imagine telling that to your wife. Hey, we're going to go see this guy. He's going to change the world. He's a king. Why? Well, we saw a star. Good one. I mean, you just got to just start imagining yourself in this story and realize that these people did not just make the trek, but then they gave. They gave gold. I don't get the picture of three, personally. I think that there was probably dozens. And I get the picture that there was not just a little bit of gold, but they showered with blessings. And I'm just like, hey, here's a little trinket, a little toy. This probably helped, by the way, when they were being uh, evacuated and fled in the next story. And they had resources to help ex- pay for the expenses of their trip down to Egypt. It ended up being very timely. How many times have you seen God's sovereign providence in providing for you at just the right time? Because it's not what our God does, even caring for the baby Jesus, the child Christ. Most people throughout church history have pointed to the fact that these gifts are symbolic in certain ways. Gold, of course, was aligning the temple. It's also something that kings would have worn in the first century and beyond and around this time in the ancient world. Frankincense would have been used as a pure incense. That's just literally what the word means, the frankincense, like a pure incense. And this frankincense would have been used all throughout the Old Testament to make an offering to God as an act of worship in the Old Testament. And then finally, myrrh was a perfume or an ointment that would have been used to help relieve pain and then also was used on dead bodies. Now, the first two make sense, don't they? Gold. He's a king, isn't he? Frankincense. Well, he is not just any king. He is the God king. as an offering to God. But then what about this myrrh? What do we make of the myrrh? Well, of course, you're supposed to read the whole Gospel of Matthew. Because again, why we jumped ahead to chapter 27. This gift should show us that this king is unlike any other king. He would come and he would die. He would need that myrrh. He would need to be prepared as his body was laid into a tomb. In fact, that's the very word used later in the Gospels to talk about the body of Jesus dead and being wrapped and then myrrh placed over his body. It could very well be that myrrh was told in this story and given at this time to be a foreshadowing pointer to the death of Christ for our sins. My friend, when you look at your own life and consider your generosity toward others, Jesus has taught us that to love God is to both give to him, but primarily to love others is to love God. It is one and the same. Does your love for God manifest itself in your love for others, in your generosity toward others, especially starting here in this church or your own family? Later on, the New Testament is going to say, if you don't even care for your own family, you're you're worse than a non-believer, a pagan, self-centered Gentile. Friends, we should be generous toward our families. I think it's perfectly fine for you to give gifts to them if you can afford them. Certainly, we shouldn't be all materialistic. Just because there's gifts given to Jesus doesn't mean we should go crazy at making sure we have the latest and greatest toys and trinkets and keep up with everybody else and their agendas on the Christmas holiday. 
But certainly it's, it's fine and appropriate to shower people with love and, and give gifts. Not just here at Christmas, but all year long. Furthermore, I think we should show that our obedience to Jesus, our submission to the true king, is displayed through our great love for the nations. Not just the gifts for those here in this church or our family, or those even in our own community. But how about the peoples from all over the world? Jesus is not just the king of the Jews. The very first worshipers that bow down their faces on the ground and have come to worship are Gentiles. Gentiles is just the word for non-Jews. Isn't it interesting that the story begins, where is the king of the Jews? And then it's non-Jews who are paying him homage as the king of all of the universe. So far, we've had a few sermons in this Matthew series. Every single time, I've pointed you to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28. We're on a streak so far. We'll see how long it lasts. The very end of Matthew's gospel is, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, not just of the Jews, but of all the nations. Because this king is the king who is worthy of worship from every tribe, tongue, and language. And so therefore, our mission as a church is to make disciples, not just here, but of everyone. What does this say then about our desire as a church to want to be unified from people from all over the face of the earth? Many of those people have already come to Chicago. And it is my hope and prayer that as the years go by, we will continue to see people that come and be baptized and profess faith in Jesus from all over the world. My friend, no matter where you have come from, no matter how far you have journeyed to get here today, this Jesus that we have been pointing you to, he is for you. Did you know in the Jewish scriptures, magi, magic men, people who looked to the astrology and stars were seen as outcasts? They were condemned. They were regarded as like, oh, you're weirdos. Doesn't that further illustrate the idea that Matthew's giving us? This Jesus is for all. Sinner and saint, black and white, poor and rich, old and young. Friends, the very first thing we have covenanted together as a church is that we would er eagerly work together for the unity of God's spirit and the bond of peace. Shouldn't texts like this help us realize that our church should be a church unified around not external conformity to certain normal issues that we, we, we rally around as a, as a community of people? Even earlier this week, I was studying Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and I was teaching on the Wednesday Bible study. The world's unity is a lot like a sack of marbles. Marbles have nothing that connects them together. You need an external force that binds together that group of marbles. If you put a hole in the sack, well, then the marbles fall out. But the unity of the church is like a magnet. Where a variety of different metals, a force is bringing together a diverse group of objects. And they're together and they're unified and they're one in Christ. My friends, this is the vision of Embassy Church because of the scriptures. Because we're not trying to read our own agendas. We're not trying to just puff our heads with more knowledge about wise men and stars. But because we want the actual point of the text to be the thing that pushes, encourages, and exhorts us week after week. And my friend, this is the point of this text. Here's the real king. His name is Jesus. He's so different from all the other kingdoms of this world. And this king is not just for the Jews. He's for all of us. 
no matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what your stage is, right now, the invitation is for all. So are you willing then to be a part of a community like that here at Embassy, for those of you that are members? Continue to eagerly work for the unity of God's spirit that brings together like a magnet force people from all over the world, different socioeconomic statuses, different thoughts and opinions about politics, and still come together and say, guess what? No matter what differences we have externally, internally we have this common force. His name is Jesus. He's come in. He's changed. He's transformed. He's made us new. That's why Jesus came. That's what Christmas should be about. How well are we doing at keeping Christ in Christmas? My hope and prayer is you've seen him in this text. Let's pray together.